You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A.com. Let's turn to uh, God's Word. We, it is the first Sunday of Advent, technically, and I will get to a sort of an Advent connection near the end of the sermon. But I wanted to finish up First Peter. Um, and it's important that we do that because First Peter is an important book and it's addressing uh, an important topic. This is the last one. Uh, and you're looking at it and go, wait a minute, what about chapter 5? Well, we already did chapter 5. Uh, we did it a little bit out of order. If you weren't here, you missed it, you can find it on our website. Today we're looking at the, the closing verses of chapter 4. And this is, it's, it, this is Peter's summation of one of his, the main themes in his teaching in this letter. And, that's, and that theme is the theme of suffering. The, Peter just really wraps it up nicely, puts a bow on it here. And uh, I think this will be uh, encouraging to you. Uh, our text is 1 Peter four twelve through 19. So, uh, if you would take your Bible or your bulletin, and if you are able, uh, please stand with me as I read God's Word. 1 Peter 4, starting at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this uh, text, the end of our look at this letter, and we come to this hard part of our lives, our suffering. I pray that you would give us all ears to hear and hearts to receive your truth. I pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us and convict us and challenge us that we might be faithful followers of your Son, our Lord, even in our suffering, we pray. Amen. Well, I had the privilege on Thursday morning last at Thanksgiving service to hear your stories 
hear many of your stories. And, and many of those stories, remarkable stories, came from a place of pain and suffering. And as I was listening to them, I was, I was reminded of uh, something theologian Miroslav Volf recently wrote. Um, I know I've been quoting Miroslav Volf a lot because I've been reading him a lot. Um, he knows suffering. He's a Christian from Croatia uh, and so suffered firsthand in that country as it was gripped in civil war. He said this, he said, those who observe suffering are tempted to reject God. Those who observe suffering are tempted to reject God. Those who experience it cannot give up on God. Their solace and their agony. Interestingly, he, in a shorthand way, describing God in, in the one sense as our, as our comfort and our strength in the midst of suffering, and yet also in another profound sense, the ordainer of our suffering. And he goes on to say, you, you can protest against the evil of the world only if you believe in a good God. Otherwise, the protest doesn't make sense. Well, none of you who spoke on Thursday uh, have rejected God, I'm pleased to say. You were all giving remarkable testimonies of persevering faith in God as a good God, even though He had taken you or He still had you in what is, could only be described as excruciating suffering. The Bible doesn't shy away from this topic. Uh, it takes suffering head on. Uh, the suffering that Peter's primarily talking about here is the suffering that comes to you because you're a Christian, right? Um, persecution for your faith. But what Peter says here about that kind of suffering specifically Christian suffering, can I believe also be helpful to you as you as believers uh, face the more general kinds of suffering that, w- that we do, right? The sort of suffering that comes to, comes to you because you live in a world as a believer in Christ, but you b- live in this world uh, that is where, where sin and death still operate, right? Peter takes on two big questions here, really big questions. First, why do Christians suffer? You may have asked yourself that question. And then he, and then he asks, how should Christians respond when they suffer? And it's when. All right? it's, not, it's not a question of if, it's, it's when uh, we suffer. Uh, suffering is inevitable, it will come. Uh, how should you respond? So, so that's our outline. Some, someone asked, is this a two-point sermon or a ten-point sermon? Well, it's, it's a two-point sermon and each, each point has five sub-points. Uh, it's, I discovered some symmetry when I was, when I was d- digging through this text that, that Peter gives us five reasons why we suffer. It's not an exhaustive list, but th- th- this is Peter's you know, summary of his teachings. It's five reasons why we suffer, and then he gives five uh, ways to respond. 
uh, to that suffering. So that's, that's where we're going. That's our outline. Uh, I prefer to think of it as a two-point outline. You may think of it as a ten-point outline, but I will go as quickly as I can. Uh, first, then, why do Christians suffer? Five reasons. I'm going to go a little out of order from the way they are in the text, but I'll show you where they come from the text. First, Christians suffer because sometimes they're jerks. I don't know uh, how else to say it. Uh, You know, sometimes Christians suffer because they've sinned. And the suffering, the pain and the suffering they're dealing with is the direct consequence of their sinful behavior. And that's verse 15, right? Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Though Peter says that, some of us do. Right? In fact, we all do in, in, in one way or another. We will, we will suffer because of our sin. There's been, of course, way too much of that in recent, recent years uh, in, in, with, with Christian leaders. We've, we've, seen, uh, we've seen them fall and, and experience a lot of pain uh, and suffering as, because they have been involved in sexual abuse or spiritual abuse or embezzlement or abuses of power. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't have to be the notorious sin that makes the press. I mean, it happens... Uh, among us, right, in, in, in quiet ways as we, as we sin against one another. And sometimes that sin, when we, when we, when we sin, we're going we're gonna to bring on pain and suffering. Um, but I, I want you to make sure you understand that that's not hopeless suffering. I mean, it may be our fault, right? It may be that we are, you know, dealing with the just consequences of our stupid actions. Uh, but I call this kind of suffering corrective suffering because there, none of that is unforgivable, right? And so as, you, as we deal with the consequences of our, our sinful actions, it ought to wake us up and lead us to, to confession, and to repentance and, to, and going to the Lord and experiencing once again His forgiveness and His grace, right? None of that is, is unforgivable. So that's the first reason why Christians suffer. But, and it's not, that's not the kind of suffering that Peter wants to talk about, right? Let, no one, let, let, let none of you suffer like that, he says. But we do. Uh, now turning to the suffering that he's primarily talking about, uh, suffering as a Christian, which will have application to your more general suffering. Uh, the, the second fundamental reason he gives that Christians suffer, and this is really, really fundamental, it's behind all of our suffering of any kind, is that it's God's will for us to suffer. Now that may sound really stark to you. Um, that may sound uh, strange in your ears, but uh, that's what uh, exactly what Peter says in verse 19. Let those who suffer according to God's will, there it is, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
Now, over the years, I've heard, I've heard Christian people say, I've even heard one, a good friend who's a Christian pastor say, uh, when he was dealing with a very, uh, some very deep suffering, um, he, he, he said something like this, and I've heard others say it. My, you know, my, my God is a God of, of unbelievable love and grace. And, and because He is such a loving God, I know He has nothing to do with this suffering that I'm dealing with. He is in no way associated with, 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 my, with, with what I'm going through now that's causing me so much pain. I understand why they say that, but it's just wrong. It's just wrong, and it flatly contradicts uh, Scripture. Um, and, and, and you have to think through the consequences of, of that statement, right? If, if it's true, if it's true that, that God is not involved in your suffering, then presumably you are outside of His will, you're outside of His control, you're outside of His care. And that is a hopeless place to be. Listen, God doesn't need us to protect his reputation. He is the all-powerful, all-loving, sovereign Lord of the universe who wills us to suffer from time to time for his good purposes. That's the second reason we suffer. It's God's will. Well, what's one of those good purposes? That gets us to the third reason we suffer. Um, We suffer because God is, through that suffering, transforming us into Jesus-like people with forged-in-fire faith. Have you ever watched that television show, Forged in Fire? I'm, I'm seeing an overwhelming response. Yeah, I think you have to be kind of a nerd um, it's it's a reality show it's some kind of a competition I've never watched the whole thing but I've I've stopped on it as I've channel surfed and it's about knife making and sword making and there are these various uh, craftsmen that 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 make these knives and in a competition but and it's and you watch them make the knife and it's and it's it is interesting at how they take a you know just raw steel and then what they do with with a piece of raw steel to turn it into you know a, a beautiful shining polished sharp effective blade right and they do a lot right it's cut it's filed it's ground it's superheated it's hammered it's pounded it's polished and just take all those words and say, and, and you know, and that becomes a pretty good metaphor for what God does to us in our suffering, right? He cuts us, he files us, he grinds us, he superheats us, he hammers us, he pounds us, he polishes us. You know, I'm not, I'm not making light of suffering. I'm, I'm, I'm really stating a truth. It's that's exactly what's happening in verse. 12, Peter describes suffering as, as, as a fiery ordeal. Uh, it's, it's, the word he uses is really what suggests that, you know, a, like a refinery, a, a refining fire, uh, a fire that purifies, um, just like a forge 
the, the fire in a forge does with a, with a, with a blade. And, and, and you go into that, he says, to test you. The fiery ordeal that tests you. Well, the, God is not testing you like your kids, like your teacher tests you, right? This is now, okay, I'm going to put you through this ordeal and I'm, it's, it's a pass-fail. And woe on you if you fail. Now, that's not what God is doing. It's testing in the sense of proving. It's testing in the sense of bringing out uh, your, your, uh, your faith and your character and making them testable, provable. Right? Um, the same idea is, uh, is uh, communicated in verses 17 through 18. Where, 17 and 18, where Peter talks about the judgment uh, uh, um, the what, 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 judgment beginning at the household of God. See that? If, if judgment begins at the household of God, what's going to happen with the ungodly and the sinner? Um, and you think, well, wait a minute. If, if judgment begins on the household of God, are we? Are, you know, are 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 we facing judgment? Well. What's behind the language there that Peter's using is uh, he's, he's drawing from an uh, image in Malachi, last book in the Old Testament. There's a vision recorded there in Malachi chapter 3 of the Lord descending in judgment upon the temple. There it is, right? Judgment beginning at the household of God. But what, what, remarkably what happens in this vision is that when the Lord hits the temple, the, the priests and the people are not destroyed, they're purified. And, and it's only then that, 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 that then the judgment of God goes out from there to destroy uh, Israel's enemies. What Peter's communicating is that what, what, what an unbeliever and maybe I'm talking to some of you now, what an unbeliever will ultimately face as judgment, believers in Jesus face now as the refiner's fire. Right? One leads to condemnation, the other leads to transformation and and salvation. Um, By the way, I need to. I should uh, clarify one thing in, in in verses seventeen and eighteen. And there in eighteen, where Peter's quoting Proverbs, he and he and he asks, "If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner?" Again, making the point that you know we're we're going through some difficulty uh, that refines us, but for the ungodly and the sinner, that 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 will be ultimately be a judgment. But I was troubled by the fact that he said, if the righteous are scarcely saved, that bother you at all? Bothered me. Because if, the, if, if I'm scarcely saved, I suppose there's a possibility that I'm not saved at all. And if I'm just getting in by the skin of my teeth, you know, maybe I, maybe I miss it. What do you mean by if the righteous is scarcely saved? Well, here I think is scarcely is a is a is is a an accurate translation, but it's not the only translation of that Greek word. And I think there's a better way to translate it here. I the, I love the ESV, but I think here they 
they could have gone another direction and it would have been clearer because the most literal sense of that word that's translated scarcely, the most literal rendering is with difficulty. With difficulty. So now read it that way. If, it's, if you read it that way, if the righteous is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? The, now it makes beginning to make more sense. You and I are saved with difficulty. Now, what does that mean? Um, you know, if we're talking about coming to the Lord for the first time, right? The act of justification. When that, that time, maybe some of you can know, remember that time, some of you can't, but it's, it's when you place your faith, when you come to a point of confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart that Jesus is Lord and is your Savior and that He was raised from the dead and you believe in Him and at that point, the, the whole, you know, you're know you born again and, and you are... Um, uh, and, and you are justified at that point. Uh, and you're justified by what Jesus did, right? So, so you are, his death forgives you, right? He pays for your sin. And, and his righteousness, his holiness is imputed to you. So right at that moment, uh, you are standing there justified, meaning you are fully and forever forgiven and stand before God as holy. It's, it's remarkable, right? And that doesn't involve difficulty for you at all. It involved a lot of difficulty for Jesus. But I don't think he's talking about the difficulty of Jesus, although that's certainly true. When he says we're saved with difficulty, he... he Peter is, is using saved there in, in, the, in sort of the biggest sense of the word. He's talking about the whole process that, be, that starts at justification when we are fully and forever forgiven and stand before God as holy. And glorification, that moment when we stand before Jesus Christ face to face. And that space... Right between our justification and our glorification is what happens with difficulty. Right, that's the forged in fire experience, because God doesn't just justify us and leave us the same. Right, as we just talked about, God transforms us. He's turning us into Jesus-like people with forged in fire faith. So, so what happens between our justification and our glorification is a whole lot of difficulty. That's that's what uh, that, that's what Peter's talking about, and um, and that's why we have so many struggles. And some of you may be wondering, well, well, why in the world then would I become a Christian? That's actually a good question, because I mean, you need to count the cost. You know, be, becoming a Christian is not to to you know to to invite in a problem free life. In fact. It's, just, it's really just the opposite. God, God is going to bring pain, suffering into our lives in order to transform us. What happens when we suffer? Right, well, a lot of things, but I, just reflecting on my own suffering, and I suspect it's like yours, one of the first things that happens when, when 
when one experiences pain and suffering. It's usually because God is challenging or taking away, cutting the legs out from something that I have been trusting in, functionally trusting in, rather than Him. And I might not even have realized it. And the pain and the suffering comes from the fact that I was leaning on that thing, and now it's gone. It might be a relationship, it might be a career, it might be a home, it might be uh, you know, a retirement account, it could be a lot of things that, that where we f- functionally trust. And the suf- suffering comes in and takes that, and, and, and the suffering is, right, the market collapses, we're fired, we're, you know, a loved one dies, uh, and, and all of a sudden, one, we wake up to the fact, that's what I've been trusting in. Two, God then shows us that, that what we're trusting in, though it's a good thing, is an inadequate thing. It's not enough for you. A career won't hold you up forever. A relationship won't hold you up forever. A person will let you down. Everyone dies, right? So, um, so God is in, in our suffering is weaning us off those things. And, and what, then what happens in suffering? When, all, when that happens, oh, at least in my experience, what I do is run to Jesus. You know, once again, I've kind of recalibrated. I, I realize, okay, I've been trusting in this thing. This is wrong. Uh, I realize, uh, you know, that it was an inadequate savior. Uh, I need to run to Jesus to get through this. And Jesus is my only hope. Um, you know, and as we run to Jesus, we become more and more like him. I, you know, I, I, I wish there were a way, another way. But I, I, you know, if there were, I'm sure God would use it. But, you know, it's, God, it takes often this pain and suffering to, to wean us off our functional trusts and back onto Jesus. Um, it, it, isn't it true? Most of the time when things are going really well, you know, when I'm on vacation, my spiritual life goes in the tank. Right? The, the, the times when I have most, you know, have really grown in my faith and have just sort of these sweet sort of uh, rediscoveries and of of new grace, new levels of love and grace in Jesus is when you're going through hard times. So it's hard. I'm not, not to make mistake, this is super hard. If you heard some of the stories on Thanksgiving Day, you understand what some of the, the, how hard some of what you're going through is. Uh, but, as Paul says, right, it, it produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope doesn't disappoint. Why? Because Jesus doesn't disappoint. Right? As we go through this, our, our character is being built because we keep, we're running back to Jesus. And, and our, our hope is put, once again put in Him. And that will never disappoint because Jesus will not disappoint. Jesus will not let you go. Okay? Fourth reason we suffer... Um, fourth and fifth are quicker. Uh, we are it, we suffer simply because of the way the world in rebellion against God reacts to responds to Jesus. Right? It's 
Look at verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So you're walking around as a Christian, you've got the spirit of glory, the same spirit of glory that rested on Jesus, and because of that, simply because of that, you are insulted. Right? Think, think about Jesus. You know, why, why was Jesus killed? You know, as you start reading the Gospels, you, you figure, what, what in the world got in these people's minds that would cause, want them to kill, kill Jesus? All he was, is doing is, you know, uh, healing people, feeding people, right? Teaching people love and forgiveness, uh, right? It's, it's this remarkable man of, of love and grace, and, and he's going around doing nothing but good. Why would you kill him, Right? Well, they killed him because this same man who was walking around healing and teaching and, and, and feeding the poor uh, made multiple bold and uncompromising claims that he was God. Right? And, and, that, uh, and that all people would one day be accountable to him and that their future destiny depended upon their relationship with him. That's why they killed him. And that's one of the knee-jerk reactions of sin, right? It's that, it's, that, it's that immediate no to any claim of authority over you. You say, I have to worship somebody. You say, I have to be accountable to somebody. You say that there's someone higher who can tell me what to do and that I have to obey. My answer is no. Right? Sin. Um... And so what happens is that that same no to Jesus gets said to you, right? The, the world vents its frustrations and resentments against Jesus onto you. Uh, remember the retirement party I told you about a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, uh, where I, I attended with many of my former partners. From a few of those former partners, I got insults. Right? I'm standing there doing nothing, saying nothing. Right? Holding my drink. And, and, uh, and insults. Uh, why? It, it's because of the frustration and the resentment against Jesus gets vented on his people. That's one of the reasons we suffer. Um, and then finally, the fifth reason we suffer... Uh, for our faith in Jesus is that, and this is an important one because I th- we often forget it, uh, is that our lives as followers of Jesus, you know, we don't we don't map out our our uh, our way. We we follow we follow the way laid down by Jesus. We follow the Jesus pattern that He laid down in His life. So if if, right, if, so if you're a follower of Jesus, you're, you're buying into his pattern. You're gonna, you're, he, God is going to lead you through life on a pattern, the same pattern that Jesus followed. And that pattern, which is mentioned in verse 13, is, is suffering first and then glory. Suffering, then glory. 
go suffering. Why? Right? You know, why suffering? Is that is God just being, you know, randomly cruel and and requiring His Son to suffer and then and then and then us to suffer? Well, you know, it, think about it. there was a necessity to Jesus' death. You know that, right? Just because. You know, he was the son of the living God and his father was a living God. It doesn't mean that there was a necessity. God God could not, even being God, could not just snap his fingers and make sin and evil go away. You think, well, why not? He's the all-powerful God. Of course he could do that. No, he couldn't. Because to do that, he would have to go against his character because that would be unjust. Right, because there has to be an accounting. There has to be a, a, a making right of the wrong. Right, there has to be justice. And if you just snapped your finger and, and sin and evil went away, then there would not be justice. Uh, you see, a world in sinful rebellion against God required a death. It was either going to be the death of us, the sinners, or the death of a substitute for those sinners. And the essence of Christianity, the core of the gospel, is that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit came together before the foundation of the world and hatched a plan where Jesus would be the substitute. Jesus would be your substitute. He had to suffer. He had to die because of your sin. And my sin. So why do we suffer? Well, we're following the pattern. It's not like we're suffering because that's saving us from our sin or we're saving others from our sin. It's as we suffer, as uh, then we are, and by suffer, let, let, let me say what, you know, we're, we're, um, you know, we're, we're submitting to, the, to Jesus. We are uh, accepting the suffering. In the midst of the suffering, we're laying down our lives for others. We're, we're surrendering our rights uh, to others. We are surrendering our uh, interests to promote the interests of others. And, and so in, in, in that, we, we are pointing to Jesus, right? We're reflecting his pattern so that our... Uh, our uh, self-giving uh, suffering uh, points to the self-giving, saving suffering of Jesus. Um, and that, of course, opens up then glory, right? Jesus, you know, Jesus received glory. He didn't just suffer, right? The death that he died for you could not hold him. He was raised to new and abundant life uh, as, as a seal of the promise that we would be too. And so, so even as we suffer, we know that um, uh, it will be followed by glory. Okay? Because we're following the pattern laid down by Jesus. Those are the five reasons that he gives. It's not an exhaustive list, but those are the five reasons that he gives that we suffer. I hope you're not hearing this as some kind of a trite treatment of it. I don't, 
I certainly don't want to communicate that, and then, nor, nor would Peter. I mean, these, are, these are serious reasons for suffering. It's certainly not a denial of suffering. It's not an attempt to rationalize suffering. It's, it's saying that, look, that suffering is under the control of a good God, and he's using it for his good purposes. And we're in a world that's in rebellion to God, and therefore sometimes we're going to suffer too because of that. So how do we respond? Uh, and this is much quicker, guys. Five ways we respond. First, verse 12, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at your suffering. Now, l- listen to me here. Peter could have said also, don't, he could have said, don't be surprised, but go ahead and grieve. You know, be, gr- grieve your suffering. Weep through your suffering. Be sad because of your suffering. Right? Read the Psalms. Right? The Psalms are full of suffering and they are also full of lamenting and weeping and grief over that suffering. Now, God, God is, you know, suffering is, is not the way God ultimately intends things to be. Suffering is hard. Suffering is painful. And, and, and God is not asking us to do something unrealistic here. Grieve, be sad, weep. Just don't be surprised. If you're, if it's surprised, if you're surprised, it means you've forgotten that God is sovereignly, redemptively using your suffering for his good purposes, and you've forgotten the pattern that's been laid down for your life. Suffering then glory. I've told you uh, about this um, I, this story before. Uh, a person in our congregation years ago, uh, longtime member, faithful servant, Involved in lots of ministries and lots of activities. Um, encourager to me. This person had a family member die. And on a dime, that person rejected the faith. And it just made my head spin. Boom! Right? That person was surprised by suffering. Why would you be surprised by it? Yeah, Maybe she'd not had a lot of it. Maybe, probably more likely, the way I think, my own life, sometimes I'm surprised by it because I think I've earned something better. Lord, look at all I've done. You know, why are you doing this to me now? But whatever it was, that surprise led that person to uh, let go of her faith. Um, and the reality is unsurprised people, unsurprised but grieving people, generally won't let go of the Lord, right? Because they're trusting in His presence that strengthens them, and they're trusting in the future glory that they're hoping in. They're trusting in this future glory that will satisfy the long, deepest longings of their hearts. You know, that's why we go to these lesser functional trusts. We're, we're, trying, to, we're trying to satisfy virtually, at least in my case, virtually inexpressible longings in my heart. I, I have a hard time putting my language to you know, 
some of my deepest feelings and longings. But I, I'm, I'm convinced that, you know, I invest so much in career. I invest so much in comfort. I invest so much in uh, approval of other people. Because what I'm trying to do is satisfy the longings of my heart. And none of those things will do that. They just won't. And, and, you know, unsurprised, grieving people recognize that and it makes them, they're running to the arms of Jesus and they're trusting in the future glory that he bought them with his life, death, and resurrection. Knowing that someday, you know, someday, it's all going to be right. And the deepest longings of my heart, the things I most want out of the earth, I will get a million times over from the Lord. That's verse, second, verse 13. Rejoice. They all have to say this, don't they? In the New Testament. Rejoice when nobody else is rejoicing. Rejoice and everybody will think you're insane. Uh, right? And it's not saying rejoice that you're suffering. Rejoice the fact that you know, you're, you're in this painful situation. You're rejoicing about you know, a death or something that is, cause, is causing you to suffer or, or an illness or, a, or an insult or a firing because of your faith, right? No, you rejoice in what your suffering is signaling. And what your suffering is signaling is that you belong to God and that He's preparing you for that future glory we just talked about. It's, it's, um, it, it's similar to what the writer of Hebrews says. Um, not talking about suffering. Well, it, yeah, he was talking about suffering, but he, called, he, he likened it to discipline. You know, this is the discipline of the Lord. It's, and, and he says, oh, nobody likes discipline. Discipline's always painful at the moment. But, dis, but discipline shows you what? That you're a father, that you have a father, and that he cares for you. And, and that's why he's disciplining you. If he didn't care for you, you wouldn't be disciplined. So, you, so we rejoice in what our suffering is signaling, okay? Third, verse 16, don't be ashamed, right? Now, it's entirely appropriate to feel shame for, for our stupid suffering, right? Um, you know, the, the, the suffering that, where we're just dealing with the, the inevitable, you know, predictable consequences of our sin, but as I told you, I, that's, that may be stupid suffering, but it's corrective suffering. Take the guilt, take it to Jesus. Confess it, repent from it, and not only will he take the guilt away, he'll take the shame away. And I know some of you, I mean, sometimes for some of us, it's not so much a question of shame it's, or guilt, it's shame. You know. Because guilt, right, is, says I've done, I've done a bad thing. And shame says, because I've done a bad thing, I'm a bad person. You know, I'm not, I'm not worth, I'm not worth the love of God. Uh, no, you are. Um, so, we can be, you know, that's appropriate shame to feel. Let it drive you to Jesus. But if it's not appropriate to be ashamed if you're suffering for the name of Jesus. 
If you've stood up for Jesus, that's no cause for shame. That's, that's a suffering God honors. Okay. Fourth, also verse 16. Instead of being ashamed, what you have to do is glorify God. Right? As a man, a woman, boy or girl who bears the name of, of, of Christ, you glorify Christ in the midst of your suffering. Meaning you give Him glory, you give Him honor, you give Him the credit for all that He is and all that He has done and is doing for you, even in your suffering. And you know what that does for you? I mean, in terms of sort of your, your, uh, your testimony to the world, it gives you massive credibility. If, if you're glorifying the Lord even in the midst of your suffering, um, if you can if you can give God glory when the rest of the world would be cursing Him, uh, there is something powerful in that, and and something credibility building. Uh, think of Job. Job's a good example. Um, Job is a man who suffered deeply uh, he, at the hands of Satan who was specifically authorized by God to do what he did to Job. And Job lost his family, he lost his uh, friends, he lost his fortune, he lost his health. And he's sitting there, suffering, and, and his wife comes up to him in the midst of this catastrophe. And she basically says, are you still here? Curse God and die. How would you like to hear, have your wife say that to you? But think about that. That's the response of the world. That's, that's the world's response to God. Curse God and die. Now, they, the world may not actively curse. It does actively curse God. But a lot of people don't actively curse Him. They just ignore Him. And then they believe death is the end of everything. Right? that there really isn't anything beyond death. So, so, so Job's wife is really telling him to face his suffering as, as the world would tell you and me to face suffering. You know, get out of your head this fiction of God, right? Just die and get over with it, right? And there's, there isn't, the world will say, there's nothing beyond your dying, you will be extinguished. There will be just oblivion. Um, so she says, curse God and die. And, she, and Job looks at her and says, you're talking like a fool. And then, and then he asks a great question. He said, shall we receive from God? Shall we receive good from God and not also receive evil? And then the writer of Job said, and in all these things, Job did not sin with his lips. He glorified the Lord in the midst of his suffering and it gave him massive credibility. Um, And then finally, fifth, the fifth way uh, we deal with suffering, verse 19, last verse, entrust your life to the Lord in doing good. That's my, the way I would translate it. Verse 19 here says, uh, entrust your souls to a faithful creator while doing, while doing good. I would read that. Entrust 
your souls, your life, to a faithful creator in doing good. That's what it more literally says, and I think that's, that's, that's more accurate. The word entrust here means to um, give over for, self, for safekeeping, or to deposit for safekeeping. It's like what you would do if you delivered uh, you know, jewels to a bank to hold in a, in a safety deposit box. Uh, Peter says, that's what you do. You give your life over. You hand your life over to the Lord Jesus for safekeeping. And what, what better place is there in the midst of suffering uh, than, in the, than in the arms of the Lord Jesus? And, and one of the ways you commit yourself to the, to the Lord, and this is what Peter is getting at at the very end, is by doing good. It's, it's, it's interesting. Peter is emphasizing that, look, we're, you're suffering, and we're going to suffer some more. And, and therefore, suffering has to be the theater for you and for me to do good. It can't be the theater where we parade our self-pity or our resignation. No, it's suffering is, that's the space, in that space of suffering is where God wants us to do good. And, and, um, and, what, a, and what a huge, strong testimony that becomes when we do. Um, and the first and fundamental part of doing good Friends, listen to this. Verse 17, um, when he's describing unbelievers, he says, What's, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The first part of doing good for all of us is that we have to obey the gospel of God. Now, that's a strange expression. Uh, but what Peter means by it, there, there are other examples of it. To, to, to obey the gospel of God is not, he's not saying you do something. He's saying trust in what Jesus did. To obey the gospel of God is to trust your life to what Jesus has done in his life and death and resurrection for you. And everything else you do that flows out of your faith uh, everything else you do flows out of that faith, that initial obedience uh, of the gospel of God, where you tr- you're tr- you've trusted uh, y- your life to Jesus. Uh, who's done it all, right? To accomplish our salvation and to guarantee our future glory. Which is why, and I close with this, we can t- this is why we can trust God in our suffering. I mean, some of you may go, you know, okay, I hear you, but uh, you know, how can we, how can we trust God? You know, in the moment, in the in the heat of it, when when uh, when things are really tough and hard, it's it's hard for me not to shake my fist at God, uh, much less trust Him. You know, how can we trust God in our suffering and commit our lives to Him in our suffering? And the answer is because as we will be remembering again in this Christmas season, here's my Advent turn, God suffered. God suffered. You know, in many ways, Advent is, is about the suffering of God. Uh, 
No other faith in the world posits that astounding truth that the faithful creator, as as Peter calls him here, entered the world he created and moved into the suffering of the people he created in his image. And that suffering began when Jesus set aside his glory and allowed himself to be implanted as a fetus in the womb of a teenage virgin named Mary. We presume she was teenage. I mean, it's just, it's just remarkable. I mean, we, you know, we all in wonder kind of kneel at the manger uh, metaphorically at this time of year. But what it really is, is, a, is an unbelievable example of the, the self-emptying suffering of our Savior. For one who is imag- unimaginably bigger than us to become one of us is, um, is to suffer for him. And um, but that, what that means is that when you suffer and when you pray to him in the midst of your suffering, you can know with a certainty that God knows what you're talking about. And he doesn't just know it intellectually, he knows it experientially, right? That's a good and faithful creator who can be trusted in both the good days and in the suffering days. And if you haven't yet obeyed the gospel of God, today uh, should be the day. Friends, embrace by faith Jesus Christ and His death for your sins and His resurrection for your life. Turn what's going to be your certain judgment into which will be condemn you into a refining fire which will transform you and make you beautiful and bring you fully accepted before the face of the one who made you. That's what's at stake. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Let's pray silently for a minute or so. Uh, think about what Peter has said here. Uh, some of you are suffering. Um, of different kinds. Some of you are suffering because of your faith. Some of you are going through some, uh, um, what did I call it? Corrective suffering. Just, 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 just bring all this stuff to the Lord and I'll close this in a minute. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that You did come and enter our world and enter our suffering. And Lord, we commend our lives to You for safekeeping. And use our suffering for Your good purposes. Help us to persevere in trusting You. In Jesus' name, Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.